With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Sports Podcast, the channel on New Books Network. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and our guest today is Dr. Jonathan Gilber, author of the book, Tiger Woods is Back and Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transformed Careers. John, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me, Bob. Uh, John is an orthopedic surgeon at the Olmsted Medical Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and he's also an athlete who enjoys running and martial arts. In fact, his first book was The Ultimate Guide to Preventing and Treating MMA Injuries. Uh, John, you began your college career at the University of Miami, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Florida, and the University of Miami was was very close. And my family were fans of the University of Florida and the Miami Hurricanes, and we were not fans of Florida State University. So my choices were the University of Florida or the University of Miami, and the University of Miami had uh, nicer weather and greener grass. (laughs) <laughs> what other degrees did you earn after Miami? So in Miami, I actually got two degrees. I got a BS in biology and a BA in chemistry. And then from there, I went on to med school at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York. And also at the same time, I got a master's degree in biomedical engineering at Columbia University while I was there in New York City. And how long have you been in Rochester? So I've been in Rochester six months. I spent some time in California after my med school in New York City. I went to California to Harvard UCLA and then to Ohio to the Cleveland Clinic for my fellowship and then back east for a little bit and recently moved here to the Midwest to Rochester, Minnesota. Okay. And you said you grew up in South Florida. I did as well in Boynton Beach. What kind of sports were you involved with at the time? So I grew up in Fort Myers, Florida. So that's the home spring training home originally was the Royals and then the Twins and now also the Red Sox. So most fans, Red Sox fans at least, know all about Fort Myers. Not as much the Minnesota Twins fans, even though I'm surrounded by them up here. They don't seem to know like the Red Sox fans do where the spring training occurs. But in Fort Myers, Florida, I did play baseball. I also played basketball and soccer. So my three sports season was baseball, basketball, and soccer. Okay. Um, talk about the um, what made you decide to write this book. Uh, was there a particular injury or a moment in sports that you saw that made you say, you know, this would be a great subject to write about? Well, as an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon, I, I did want to tell the story of the Tommy John surgery. Speaking of baseball and, and multi-season sports, Tommy John surgery is a great surgery, and it's something that helps us to get professional and other high-level athletes back to their sports, but unfortunately, there's a lot of myths surrounding Tommy John surgery. And some of those myths are that it makes you stronger, 
or that you don't need an injury to have the Tommy John surgery. And that's not true. And for the readers who are unfamiliar with the story, Tommy John was a baseball pitcher and he tore an ligament on the inner side of his elbow. And so that's a very important ligament for stabilizing your arm when you're doing things overhead, like pitching a baseball. So Tommy John tore that ligament and for all intents and purposes, his career was likely have been over had it not been for a doctor by the name of Frank Job, who had started to treat Sandy Koufax at the end of his career when he started taking care of the LA Dodgers and then came up with the Tommy John surgery, which performed and subsequently got Tommy John back for the second half of his career. So this is a surgery that's been around for quite some time, but unfortunately, there are young athletes today. In fact, the most patients undergoing the surgery are 15, 16, 17-year-olds. And one of the reasons is that many of these young athletes are not listening to their body and they're pitching through pain or they're playing baseball year-round. So they're not playing other sports. As we just mentioned, as I was younger, we would play different sports for different seasons. I chose baseball, basketball, and soccer. In fact, Tommy John himself was a basketball player most of the time. He had many, many basketball scholarships. And he chose instead to go to baseball. But even then, he was playing other sports. And so that's something that we don't see as much today. And unfortunately, we've come up with something that is similar to the Cobra effect. So my book goes into something called the Cobra effect, which is an idea of unintended consequences. So the first story that's told in the book is Tommy John and the Tommy John surgery, where we have this surgery that is good, that does help get pitchers and other athletes back. But because we have the surgery, we have many folks ignoring the advice of others to prevent injuries because they feel they can fall back on the surgery. So we've had an unintended consequence of actually probably making the problem worse based on the solution. And that is actually the story of the Cobra effect. And it's quite a fascinating concept too. Um, and um, all the subjects that you chose, all the, all the athletes you chose were compelling. The ones that I found most interesting and, and really had to go back and remember these guys were like Len Bias and um, Magic Johnson. Obviously, I know about Lyle Alzado and Dale Earnhardt Sr. Uh, let's start with a guy like Bias. I mean, the man seemed to have a wonderfully bright future ahead. And, and then, you know, he had that drug overdose. What, uh, what was the ripple effect or the Cobra effect in his case? Yeah, and each of these athletes, as you mentioned, their stories don't end with their careers. In fact, they go beyond the sport that they were involved in to society as a whole. And of all the chapters in the book and all the stories that I tell, I think the one that has had the longest and lasting impact is that of Len Bias. And that's because Len Bias's death actually helped shape the drug laws that we are still trying to alter today. For People who don't remember, Len Bias was the number one draft pick in the NBA. He was a, a very talented superstar. He was going to be the next Michael Jordan. He was drafted to play alongside Larry Bird for the Boston Celtics. And the weekend of the NBA draft, after being drafted number one, Len went back to school and he overdosed on drugs. And he actually overdosed on powdered cocaine. But at the time, there was a concerted effort during the war on drugs to focus on crack cocaine. We were in the midst of a crack epidemic. And although much of the research has shown that crack is obviously a very dangerous drug, the effects of crack versus powdered cocaine were strongly disproportionate in terms of what people were focusing on as the side effects or dangerous effects of these drugs. And so what happened when Len died was there was a political 
action that happened because it was an election year and drug laws were passed in an effort to look tough on drug laws and also in an effort to try and get upper level drug dealers by skewing mandatory minimum sentences heavily towards crack cocaine over the powder form of cocaine. So what ended up happening was a disproportionate number of young African males who were in possession of crack cocaine as opposed to powdered cocaine were sent to jail for very long periods of time. And in fact, not only was it the African-American male that was disproportionately sentenced, but low-level dealers and not the big kingpins that the initial laws had intended to catch. So we had this ripple effect of unintended consequences where we didn't get the drug kingpins and we put away much more African-American males than other ethnicities. And as a result, actually the last two presidents have tried to change these laws and try to make them more proportionate. And we're still trying to work out our justice system because of these laws that were put in place in reaction to Len Bias, a basketball player's death. And I think we were all stunned when um, Maddie Johnson made his announcement that he was HIV positive, and I think it really changed the perception of the disease. But wasn't there a negative outcome also because of the way he framed his announcement? Yeah, there was. There's sort of two concepts if we look back at Magic's announcement. Now, number one, Magic Johnson was a pioneer in society's acceptance of those inflicted or infected with HIV. You know, at the time. It was still questionable. Could you hold hands? Could you kiss? Could you catch it from sweat? You know, Magic showed that physical contact was okay. In fact, Magic came back. He played in the NBA All-Star game. He played on the Dream Team. I mean, Magic showed that even though you had HIV, it was not necessarily a death sentence. And that coupled with advances in HIV antiviral therapy really helped to shape the public's understanding of the disease. But there's a double-edged sword there. One of those effects is that magic did so well that magic's sort of warnings about HIV have begun to become less effective because we see the magic smiling face. Everybody knows Magic Johnson, how healthy he is. So the fear of HIV has changed a bit. But if you go back to his announcement, what's very interesting, which happened after his announcement was there was an increase in people looking to get tested for HIV. But if you actually broke it down into ethnicity groups and male versus female, the group that had the longest lasting effect in terms of wanting to get tested and actually getting tested was white heterosexual males under the age of 40. And if you look at the groups that were at risk for the disease, they were actually the least likely to have the disease. So we had an increase in testing, which is always good, but we were testing the wrong group. We were testing the group that was least likely to have the disease. And one of the groups that's still disproportionately affected by HIV today is African-American females. And at the time, Magic's wife, Cookie, was far from the spotlight. She was a very shy person and, and wasn't like Magic. In fact, she was the opposite when it came to going out in public events. But at the same time, at first, we didn't know if Magic's wife was infected nor their unborn child because they were going to have a baby together when Magic made his announcement. Unfortunately, neither of them contracted the disease. But Cookie Johnson, perhaps, might have been the more effective face for testing because she, being an African-American female, may have had a greater response to the African-American female community than Magic Johnson did to white heterosexual males under the age of 40, being the group that 
responded greater and longer lasting to his announcement. True. And then you have Lyle Alzado, who was a tremendously in- interesting and an intense guy. I mean, he was like a madman on the field. And before um, Super Bowl 18, he famously said about Joe Jacoby, he was going to rip his lips off. And Jacoby said something to the effect of, well, that would be an improvement. Um, I liked how the New York Post called him sort of like a flawed evangelist. And you also contend that um, lumping the cancer that he eventually got and the steroids that he used really buried the real issue. Is that correct? Yeah. As you mentioned, of all the characters in the stories that I tell, Lyle is probably one of the most colorful, if not the most colorful. You know, he, he was a barbarian. He looked the part. He had the beard, the hair, the crazy eyes. He was extremely muscular. And in fact, he grew up in a very abusive home. And so becoming as strong and physically powerful as he did was partly a defense mechanism. He always had a great fear of his father. But as he made his way through the NFL, he became just as famous for his performance as his outbreaks. And in fact, you mentioned his his on-field antics. There's a rule after him that you can't use a helmet as a weapon because he tried to do that in the game. And so Lyle became famous for these outbursts. And while Lyle became so physically large and strong, he was abusing steroids from a very early age. And so what had happened was Lyle denied it all throughout his career. In fact, there's a very famous interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger's wife, of all people, where Lyle's in Gold's Gym and in Venice, California, and, and denies ever using anabolic steroids. But then what happened was Lyle developed brain lymphoma. And he was also using human growth hormone, which in those early days was coming from cadavers and other very suspect sources. And so what happened was Lyle developed this brain lymphoma and he attributed his use of anabolic steroids to causing the brain lymphoma. And when he came out later in this interview, also looking very gaunt and very, you know, almost like a skeleton with a bandana on his head, very different to the, the very thriving barbarian that people were used to seeing. He had a message that he lied and that anabolic steroids were dangerous, which is completely true. But the problem was when he blamed his lymphoma, his brain lymphoma, on the anabolic steroids, although it is possible that it caused it, it is unlikely. And what happened was many of the bodybuilders and athletes around him, they were not getting cancers, especially not cancers of the brain. And so they tended to shut off listening to Lyle's message simply because, as you mentioned, a flawed evangelist is actually a very good term for that because he was talking about brain lymphoma and no one else was getting brain lymphoma or brain cancer. And so they basically drove the conversation underground. Nobody wanted to hear about it because the side effects were not being seen. The other side effect that we talk a lot about is roid rage and roid rage does happen. There is an increased level of aggression in testosterone, but it's also one of the least likely side effects compared to other real side effects like heart disease and depression. These are actually much more common. And those are something we could be talking about. And in fact, as many of these steroid users who are now in their 50s are dealing with heart conditions, it's something we should be aware of and we should be discussing the truer or more common side effects of anabolic steroids. And so because of Lyle coming out and blaming his brain lymphoma as this problem's cause, as well as 
roid rage and things like that. We've really driven the conversation underground. And so there is a conversation that should be had on what are the real dangers of anabolic steroids. But unfortunately, that conversation has gone underground and we're just not having it out in the open like we should be. Right. And a lot of steroid use, I mean, you see professional wrestlers back in the 70s and 80s, well, the 80s actually just bulking up. And then now some of these same athletes are, are dying from that sort of thing. Yes. I mean, there in many, many sports, and, and yes, and, as you, and many of them die from cardiovascular disease, which we know is a major and common side effect of anabolic steroids. Dale Earnhardt was another interesting case. I mean, it, it his death resulted in more stringent hel- helmet specifications. And I remember there was a big legal battle about privacy matters, particularly a lawsuit the Orlando Sentinel had about um, the newspaper to gain access to certain photographs, although they were not planning to run them, but they wanted to see the pictures. But uh, talk about Earnhardt's case. So Dale Earnhardt's tragic death in racing had two effects, as many of these stories do. And the first one was in the sport. The second was in society. So Dale's effects of his death in sport was NASCAR's efforts to make racing safer. And what they did was they designed the car of tomorrow as a safer car. But when they designed the car, they really didn't talk to the drivers or consider the fans or other members of their community. Now, this is in contrast to the death in Formula One racing of the very famous Senna. And when Ayrton Senna died, the drivers got together, the owners got together, administrators got together, and they helped make things safer. And that lasted for a very long time. But what happened with NASCAR and the car of tomorrow is they didn't talk to the drivers. They didn't look at the fan experience. And so when the car of tomorrow came out, it was a bit of a disaster. Many of the drivers hated it. They came out complaining about it, didn't handle right. They didn't like the way it moved. The aerodynamics were different. And then the fans, because all the shapes of the cars were the same, they couldn't tell them apart on the racetrack like they used to. So the uniqueness of each driver and their car and the personality was lost. And so as a result, viewership and, and fan base suffered. In fact, NASCAR has had a hard time recovering ever since that era, among other reasons. That certainly was one of them. And so what happened was they they did not take into account all these other things. So that was a cobra effect right there. That's an idea of unintended consequence. We have this problem. We have a well-intentioned solution. All of these problems, all of these cobra effects have a well-intentioned solution, but unfortunately the data or other things are not interpreted correctly and therefore your problem can actually become worse. And so with Dale, you have the car of tomorrow affecting the sport. Now affecting society, you mentioned the privacy laws. So there was this fight to get the autopsy photos. And so Governor Jeb Bush at the time helped pass legislation to protect the family of Dale Earnhardt. And so as a result, the Dale Earnhardt privacy laws were established in Florida and have subsequently been cited in other cases for sensitive information related to deaths and other issues that might cause grieving family members to suffer. And so as a result of Dale's death, there are laws on the books regarding privacy laws, which are becoming ever more important than even back when Dale died, because we have the internet, because we have social media, these things get out there so much easier. And so privacy laws are becoming ever more important. And many of these privacy laws can be traced back to Dale Earnhardt's death. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I guess HIPAA wasn't a big big deal back then, was it? No, I'm not even sure we had the acronym then. <laughs> we'll jump back to Tommy John for a minute. Um, when, when I was in Little League, and perhaps when you were too, I mean, uh, coaches always told the kids, don't throw the curve, don't throw the curve, it's going to kill your arm. And like you said, um, kids 15 to 17 are the ones getting Tommy John surgery and they don't really need it. I mean, why, why the big rush to, to have your arm fixed at such a young age when you're still growing? Yeah. So, you know, a couple things uh, in terms of that. So number one, you know, the idea that you don't need an injury to have Tommy John surgery again, that's, that's false. We would never do a surgery on someone who didn't tear their ligament. So, you know, that's the first thing to realize the, the curveball problem though is actually something very interesting and the curveball itself the idea that it causes injuries to young elbows is actually a bit controversial in the medical and scientific communities so there's certainly two camps so one camp is of the idea that teenagers young teenagers should not be throwing curveballs and the idea being that you shouldn't be throwing a curveball till at least you can shave so you should be waiting till you're older but there's another camp that has done actual biomechanical analyses and motion analysis and looked at the stress across the elbow of young pitchers. And if they're throwing a true curveball, so it's a curveball where if you're looking at a clock face, you're coming from 12 o'clock down to 6 o'clock. That's a true curveball. The stress on the inner ligament of the elbow actually goes down. But the problem is many pitchers, especially young pitchers, are not throwing a true curveball from 12 o'clock to 6 o'clock. They're coming around the side. It's sort of a mix between a curveball and a slider. So it's like slurve, as some people call it. And so this actually, that non-true curveball, that slurve, is actually causing the increased stress across the elbow. And so that can cause injury if you're throwing that at a young age. So that's really where the controversy comes in is does the curveball actually increase stress across the elbow? And it really looks at how you throw it. And so that's something that really comes with education and body mechanics. And, and that's very important in all injury prevention and overhead athletes is using your whole body to throw. It's something called the kinetic chain, using the ground, using your legs, using your torso, using everything up until the arm, the arm being the last link in the chain to get that ball across the plate. That's why guys like um, Tom Seaver and, and Nolan Ryan were so effective because they use their legs and their torso to really propel their strength. Before exactly. Yep, and that's that's very true for many sports, using your whole body, even boxing. You know, guys like Mike Tyson, they're so strong, but if you look at their legs, their legs are extremely powerful as well. And talk about, since we're talking about boxing, Kim Duck-Koo was a, was a, I mean, He's sort of forgotten now, but that was pretty controversial back then when he was when he died after being hit in the ring. Yeah, so the story of Dooku Kim and Boo Boo Mancini uh, makes an appearance in the book, and that was a very tragic day where Dooku Kim died after 
actually going toe to toe with Ray Boom Boom Mancini. You know, it was on paper, it was a very skewed matchup. Boom Boom being a true champion and Dooku Kim coming out of nowhere in Korea uh, to face the champion. But Dooku Kim being the unstoppable force that he was just kept coming back and he went toe to toe with Mancini. And you can still catch the fight you know, on the internet, if you ever want to watch a great fight. And, and Dooku Kim never backed down, but unfortunately he took a severe beating and the brain trauma and swelling resulted in, in his death a few days later. And not only did he die, uh, but his mother committed suicide. The referee involved in the match ended up committing suicide, although he had other issues that may have contributed to that death. But there's a long string of deaths related to this tragedy from boxing. But one of the most Cobra-like unintended consequences of the of the story is that in an effort, among other events afterwards, to try and protect fighters with things like the Muhammad Ali Act, actually many loopholes have been made that promoters and other, who shall say, unscrupulous people in the boxing and combat sports industry can leverage. And so the book goes into details about these various laws and regulations that while intended to protect the fighter actually have opened up loopholes that put them at financial and health risk. And then we get to the other subject in your book is um, Tiger Woods and marvelous career. And then his career just went downhill because of some injuries and some personal problems. Um, what was his Cobra effect? So Tiger has two stories, again, as, as most of these do. Uh, so right. The first one is his back. So that's the physical. So Tiger Woods has a very powerful, very violent swing. And, you know, he relies on strength. And, and that strength is great until the mechanics of the machine start to break down. And so what happened with Tiger is the discs between the vertebrae or the bones in his back began to bulge. And if they bulge out far enough and they pinch a nerve, then that causes significant pain that requires a surgery. And so he had several surgeries to have part of the disc removed, the part that was pinching on the nerve. But eventually you run out of disc to take out, and then you're left with just the bones that then need to be fused together. And so he ended up, after multiple discectomies, needing a fusion. And so when you start to fuse segments of the spine together, the other segments start to see extra stress and they start to break down. And so while Tiger has the skill to win, I mean, we've seen it with the Masters. And in fact, when I had finished the first draft of the book, he was still ranked you know, near 100th in the world. And then right before the book came out, he actually won the Masters. So we had to change the ending because nobody, at least I didn't see that coming. Uh, so right. he shows he has the skill. Uh, but he just doesn't have the, the endurance, and, and he's going to have to be more selective. And we've seen him pull out of players' championships and other events simply because while he has the skill, he just doesn't have the stamina to compete. But the other story, which we don't talk about, and we should, is what happened when he was found on the side of the road in Jupiter, Florida, by the police. He right. was not drinking, but he had multiple medications in his system, including Vicodin and Xanax, the Vicodin being prescribed him for pain after his surgeries. And he was even using that before then to get through events. And he had become addicted to pain medicine. But he was also combining it with Xanax. So we have this a discussion about this opioid epidemic 
in society. But there's many, many professional athletes. Brett Favre was famously one of them to speak out in, after retiring from the NFL about his addiction to pain medicine. But there have been actual studies where people have gone through the NFL Players Association phone book and called athletes and found out how many of them were addicted to pain medicine, leaving professional sports. And it was a shockingly high number. And so we have this opioid epidemic, even in professional athletes. And then the other aspect of the opioid epidemic we don't talk about is the combination of other medications like Xanax being combined with the opioids. And when that happens, it has an increased risk of death. And so when Tiger actually mixes Xanax and his opioids, he is very lucky that all that happened was he was found on the side of the road because that story could have been much more tragic than it was. And then I think because um, it wasn't researched at the time and they might have just said he just had, you know, had an overdose and that was it, you know, poor tiger. So it is it is good that he survived it. Yes. And, and fortunately, you know, he I mean, fortunately, I should say he did go into rehab, but unfortunately, we missed a prime opportunity for a conversation as we did with the steroids and Lyle Alzada. We missed the opioid conversation with Tiger Woods. What about, um, and you deal with con- concussions, I mean, what about the CTE um, discussion? So CTE is, is something that's ongoing. Um, that's It's a real thing, and we're learning so much more about concussions. In fact, if you just think about concussions in general, you know, the old adage of just lying still in a dark room, not falling asleep, and we found all that to be not true. In fact, we want folks to actually do things. We want you to sort of go up to the limit where you start to get symptoms, but not past it. So I actually want you to do things like walk your dog, start to do short exercises and making a protocol. That's big right now in the medical community is return to play protocols and how do we progress athletes back. So we're doing that, I think, very well and we're starting to identify them. But there are things that athletes and, and coaches and parents need to be on the lookout for and that's not those immediate signs of concussion. Like you people used to think, okay, you had to be knocked out to get a concussion. And that's not true. You know, we still now know the whole getting your bell rung thing is not good. And people are, are understanding that. But there are things like, you know, trouble focusing, uh, problems adjusting to light, attitude or emotional changes, behavioral changes. These are things that are longer lasting or not immediate effects of concussions. And so we really need to be on the lookout for those kind of things. And, and something else that we're focusing more on are sub-concussive episodes. So it's this trauma that doesn't quite lead to the level of concussion, but it happens over and over again, like in football practice, like in sparring in mixed martial arts and boxing, you start to see these sub-concussive episodes add up. And so that's something we really need to try and limit and watch out for. In fact, if you look at mixed martial artists, a lot of them who are coming to understand this, they're staying away from hard sparring because they know they can take a punch. They, they have nothing to prove. So they stay away from hard sparring and they just focus on technique and strategy. And that might be something we need to look at in the future is not just trying to show how tough you are, but instead taking the time outside of your event to focus on technique and strategy. Right, because a guy like Ali, no telling how many sparring rounds he did and how many times he took a punch, in addition to the the uh, you know the times that he boxed. Right, and the time he walked into that ring, he had, had many battles, many battles in practice and in his training camps where he set foot in that ring. Well, the list of people you have are interesting. Were there 
did you have like a set list and you had to narrow it down or there's some people that just didn't quite make the cut? Yeah, there are a couple other stories uh, that did not make the cut that I, I'd like to maybe find an outlet for uh, moving forward, as well as another athlete that I discovered. I'm actually looking to write a book based on him as well, a tragedy in college sports, uh, that he did not have the cobra effect or that of an unintended consequence, but nevertheless was an interesting story. So there are several athletes that did not make the book simply because they didn't fall into the cobra effect idea. But I think hopefully I'll be able to tell their story soon. Which athlete are you thinking about writing? Oh, that's going to be a secret for now. I'll let you know when it comes out. <laughs> okay. And in doing your research, what was the most interesting piece of information that you discovered as you as you went through this Cobra effect and, and researching the athletes? Yeah, I think the one that surprised me as having the greatest impact was Len Bias. Um, that certainly was one that I did not realize until I really got into the research of drug laws, how widespread his death really was. Uh, but there are other ones too, like in the NFL, Tom Brady and, and how laws were really changed to protect the quarterback. Um, Hank Gathers is another one, another exciting athlete. People look him up and he has a very, very amazing story as well. And the whole controversy after him about screening athletes for cardiac problems, that's a major international controversy as well. And a lot of that began with Hank Gathers' sudden death from heart disease, uh, heart condition on the basketball court in college. And what was the most challenging part of this project? The most challenging aspect was simply like any other scientific research is just getting all the data, doing the grudge work of getting the studies, reading them and analyzing them. You know, that's, that's the hard part. The writing the stories, that's the fun part. But if you want to make sure you're, you're backing things up with that, you really got to go through the literature. So that is probably the hardest part because you just have to sit there and sift through all the literature, make sure you've got the complete story or as close to it as you can. And what I found interesting in the book, and you, know, you pick up a book from a doctor, you think, oh, man, I'm going to be buried in technical terms. But you tend to write in a very smooth and, and you know understandable understandable way. So uh, it made a lot of sense for me to read this book. Well, I appreciate that. That really was my goal. This was not meant to be a textbook or a manual, but really a story of understanding and, and stories of the Cobra effect so that we can learn from these things, so that we can understand the various aspects of unintended consequences, because we're never going to rid ourselves. We are human. We're not computers. So we're, we're always going to overreact to things or be emotional in our decisions. But if we can learn from some of these stories and apply them to other things, I think that's going to be the, the real lesson of the book. I wonder if a guy like Koufax, I mean, you, uh, in your opening chapter, you were talking about how he was hurting as, as early as 1964 and he didn't retire until after the 66 season. And he was in a lot of pain. I wonder if he'd ever considered, gee, what would have happened if I had, you know, today's modern technology? Oh, he, long he, he definitely did. In fact, he, he went up to Dr. Frank Job, who did the Tommy John surgery, and said if Frank had come along a little earlier, we'd be talking about the Sandy Koufax surgery today. Right. Well, it's been an interesting interview, and I know that your time is valuable, and you know we've appreciated all the time you've taken today. Um, and your next project, you sort of intimated <laughs> what you're going to do, but you're, you're not going to let it go just yet. How far in the future are you looking at as far as getting this done? Oh, I hope uh, maybe uh, this time next year we'll have another story to tell. Good. Well, we've been speaking with Dr. Jonathan S. Gilber, 
author of Tiger Woods' Back in Tommy John's Elbow, Injuries and Tragedies that Transform Careers. Thank you, John, for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Great. Well, you've been listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on New Books Network, and I'm Bob D'Angelo. And thank you again for listening. Until next time, remember, the game is what matters. <laughs>